You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. So, take your Bibles, come to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, and in particular, excuse me, verse 6 is where we will be in just a moment. Romans chapter 9, verse 6, and a picture as we get there from last week comes from Otto. Where am I missing Otto? There, <laughs> Okay, there he is. Otto, thanks for this. You've got, now, Otto doesn't have gold crayons with him, right? So you're doing the best you can with the golden calf. And uh, this was that incident, I think Exodus 32 mentioned last week, Israel sins against God. They are not hardly out of Egypt. Well, even before this, it doesn't take long for them to grumble. But there's sin. And Moses says, Lord, will you pardon them? Will you forgive? But if not, then blot me out of the book. Kind of a reference last week as we were looking at Paul, who also said, I'd rather be accursed for the sake of my people in the flesh. And so Otto drew that scene from back in Exodus. Moses there saying, what have you done? Thank you for that, Otto. Thanks for all that our drawing as we go. If you're new here, there's other clipboards in the back with crayons. Grab one. Feel free to get up. Uh, grab one. Adults, if you need crayons today, go for it and make a beautiful picture. Keep it anonymous, but turn it in. Let me see that. Uh, well, we're here in God's Word at Romans chapter 9 and now verse 6. Let me read through verse 13. A paragraph in the ESV Maybe most likely a paragraph in yours here. Paul says this, But it is not as though the word of God had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray again as we we come, Lord, we come to you once again in need of your matchless, infinite, grace poured out for us throughout our lives. Those who are older believers amongst us can testify to a life of your grace, to a couple today celebrating 50 years of your grace. And we thank you for that in a marriage. And Lord, you are gracious in so many ways, many ways that we don't even tend to see. We maybe just look at good things as your grace, and yet you're gracious in all causing all things to work to good for those who love you. And that love of you is by your grace. Lord, thank you for who you are and guide us now as we study your word. May your spirit be gracious to us as we cover some things that may be difficult to understand. Uh, Getting into the Old Testament and the New, 
Lord, would you give us a grounding uh, in who you are today? We pray in your name. Amen. Well, before we go further into this text, I want you to listen. I was listening to a preacher this week. He just list off a bunch of verses on God's sovereign reign over all things. And I want to present these before you as kind of a laying a foundation and then of what we'll study. So just enjoy. You don't have to, you could write them down, but just listen and enjoy the words reflecting of God's word of God's sovereign hand. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. 1 Timothy 6.15 addresses God as he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Psalm 93 verse 1 says, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. Psalm 96.10 Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Equity, fairness. Psalm 99.1, the Lord reigns. You get a theme here. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Or Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. These verses come from, it was a kind of a short talk, Stephen Lawson, on the subject of God's sovereignty, God's supremacy, His determining of all things. And Lawson says this, he says, God has appointed not only the end of all things, that is, beginning from eternity past, eternity Ahead, he's not only pointed the end of all things, but the means to the accomplishment of all things. He's appointed, think of this in his sovereignty, that we would pray. He has appointed, we would preach and witness. We would live a godly life to enhance the beauty of the gospel. So God's sovereignty is his control and authority over everything, including the very living of our lives. With that said, today we step in further. We're stepping further into this river of Romans 9 with these texts as a backdrop of God's sovereign rule. And So with that footing there, we're on good, solid ground about who this God is that we're going to read about in the old, in the new here as we look at this text. So come back, we look at verse 16 to begin, or 6, I'm sorry, to begin with. Where Paul says, he's kind, of, he's kind of replying to what's come before, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And last week we saw, we looked at these first uh, five verses here in Romans 9, Paul's own people, ethnic Israel, to them had come the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, there's a list there, the worship, the promise, the patriarchs, even Christ. And so what happened to this people on the whole, that, that though they had all the gifts, they seem to have missed the true giver of life, that is Christ. So essentially the question is, has God's promise, and so God's word, has it failed? 
if Israel was given all these blessings, why had they largely, in large part, rejected the Messiah? So has God's Word failed to deliver on God's promises? Paul first answers in the negative, no, no. Get it? Let's get this laid down. The Word of God has not failed. It does not fail. It may appear that way. It may look like Israel itself was a big failure. And, but though it looks a certain way, God's never uh, ending word. His, his word never fails. His purposes, they're sure. And so God's blessings, His promises, His covenants, they're all perfectly held. They're all valued, uh, valid. And what Paul says next here in the second part of verse 6 sheds light on this answer. So God's word has not failed. And then he goes on to say, well, it begins with the next sentence there with a four. There's an explanation here. Four. How has God's word not failed? Answer, well, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Which is, in fact, if you've been studying along Romans with us through these weeks, that's not a surprise As we look at Romans, just to reference back a couple places, Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Paul says, verse 29 of chapter 2, a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Romans 3.9 puts Jews and Greeks all together. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Both. Or Romans 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham, now here's Abraham language, and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And then verse 16 says, That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only the adherent adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, father of us all in faith. I think any Jew would want to say they are part of true Israel, they've got this heritage, these covenants, the law. But Paul just has kind of blasted that thought out of the water here in the second part of verse 6. Not all Israel is in fact Israel. And the rest of the text, what follows, is going to help to explain and think through what he just said. From here, Paul's going to use two birth narratives coming out of the Uh, Old Testament to illustrate that true Israel, the, the distinction of those who are in fact children of God, true Israel, it's reliant upon number one, and we're going to look at this in verses seven through nine, it's reliant upon God's promise, and then verses 10 through 13, reliant upon God's purpose. So you've got God's word doesn't fail, and then there's God's promise to his children, and then God's purpose. Let's look at the promise first and look at verse 7. It says, And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
I have a little Bible trivia for you this morning. See if you can just work through this in your mind. I had to, so you get to come along with. Who are the children of? If you think of the re, the actual reality, children that Abraham could call sons. Do you know who the children of Abraham are? We've got Isaac, so we're doing good. And then maybe many of us would say Ishmael. He's going to come up as we think about him. But then there's others. Maybe some of you are really, you're like, oh, I remember those. Uh, Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Those are all other children by flesh of Abraham. And yet here, it's only through one, only one named Isaac, that Abraham's offspring would be named. And it's a reference here. We'll look at some other places, but here we won't turn there, but it's a reference to Genesis 21, verse 12. Sarah, Abraham's wife, she wanted Abraham to cast out Hagar along with her son, Ishmael. That's Abraham had named Ishmael, and Abraham had had the son through Hagar, and Sarah wants to cast this, this woman out with her son. This idea displeases Abraham, but in verse 12, we read of God saying this to Abraham. He says, Be not displeased because of the boy, Ishmael, and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so, verse 7, Paul draws on this to say, Not all are children of Abraham, are they? Because they're his offspring. Verse 8 goes on to tell us what this means. Paul says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. If flesh was all that mattered, then any one of Abraham's eight sons could claim they were the true offspring of Abraham. But God's word, again, it specifies, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It's not children of the flesh. It's not mere descent, mere bloodlines, blood relatives. It's based rather on promise, God's promise. And so verse 9 is going to show that this impossible promise comes only through the sovereign will of God. Look now at verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now, I do want you to turn back to this. Genesis chapter 18. This is one of, I believe, three places we're going to turn to this morning. Genesis 18, if you want to head to verse 10, is where we're going to see this laid out for us. There's just a background as you're getting to Genesis 18, verse 10. There's an appearance of the Lord. There's, There's three men. Some might see that as this is God in three, although two of them later leave and it's still the Lord talking to Abraham. You can work that out. But essentially, it's the Lord who is before Abraham. And this is before Isaac has ever been born. And we read this. I'll start in verse 10 and go through verse 15. So the Lord says this to Abraham. He says, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah (laughs) laughed to herself, saying, 
After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? There's a great question, verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. God makes a promise, a promise made to no other offspring of Abraham that barren Sarah would have a son. So impossible it made her laugh here. But again, verse 14, nothing's too hard with a sovereign God and his plan and his promises. So Sarah, who could have no children, is promised a child. And so it's through Isaac that Abraham's true offspring come. But not even through the bloodline of Isaac, but I think this principle of Isaac and further offspring are built upon the principle of God's promise. So children who can call Abraham their father in the faith are children of promise. A promise, Paul says, again, in Romans 4, 16, that depends on faith resting on grace, not the flesh. All right, we can make your way back to Romans 9. It is God's promise, not the flesh, that determines who are the true children of God. It's this promise. And now Paul heads to another Old Testament narrative. So there's Abraham, Sarah, Isaac. Now another one to think on God's purpose. Look now at verse 10. Where he says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. And I'm just going to stop right there. We move on now to Isaac and Rebekah. And specifically, we're really moving on to Rebekah's womb. That's where we're at. Jacob and Esau. Those, those children, Rebekah has conceived by one man. They're not two batches of children. They're twins in the same womb. I think Paul here, he's making an even stronger argument of distinction among offspring. So you might say, sure, Ishmael, Hagar's son, was not the true offspring of Abraham, but maybe that makes sense. It was another woman. It's not his real wife, Sarah. But here, there's not even a distinction when they share the same womb, and so God's electing purposes are seen even that much more clearly in this in this place. Now we're going to look more at verse 11, but I want you to skip to verse 12 to give us some background to what we'll see in verse 11. So skip down. I guess we've already read the whole part, but in verse 12 it says, She was, Rebecca was, told, The older will serve the younger. And then verse 13, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Again, Paul here, he's quoting two other Old Testament texts. And I want to I want to just go back, hunt these down with you, look at them really briefly, and then recome back to to Romans 9 and look a little bit more. So now that you just came out of Genesis 18, go to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. And verse um, verse 23, I think it's it's the verse in particular. I'm going to read 21 and through 23 here. 
This is the quote, verse 12, Paul is using. The older shall serve the younger. Here's the background. Here's where we're coming from. Verse 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. Rebecca asks here, why is this struggle within me? She's got a why question and God's answers here. And God's answer comes before, as we're going to see verse 11, His answer comes before they had done anything good or bad or had been born. And the answer is, There's a struggle because there's two nations, they'll be divided, the one stronger, the older shall serve the younger. All right, so that's one setting in the womb. Now head to Malachi chapter 1. So now we'll work back towards Romans, the very last book in your Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1. Right at verse 2, really, here's a passage answering a question of Israel. Now, at this point, we jumped way ahead. Israel, from what I understand, they're back in the promised land after being exiled to Babylon. They're back, and they're regarding God's word to them that says to Israel, I have loved you. And they're asking here, wait, you've loved us? How, How have you loved us? God answers here in the beginning of Malachi. So let me just start in verse, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? And so now the Lord answers. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, the ESV Study Bible notes here, and I'm quoting, whereas Judah think Israel here, was graciously restored after her punishment or after the judgment of God. Judah, Israel, is restored, reflecting the Lord's love for his people. Edom, or Esau, their judgment was to be permanent and irreversible. So while Jacob and Esau are in the womb, God's word declares the older will serve the younger, even though Esau Esau did come out first. And then further, God's word in Malachi here, it distinguishes God's elective love, saying, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, we're going to come back to that phrase in just a little bit and just think a little more on it, and even Paul will, as the, as the chapter unfolds. 
But with this background, now come back to Romans 9. That's the last place we'll go. Come back to verse 11. So here's Rebecca, conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. And so verse 11, I think I've already alluded to this, says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, then we get where we just were. The older shall serve the younger. Jacob I've loved, Esau I hated. Paul makes a couple of statements here in verse 11, just, just to be sure, I think, that we get the situation and the circumstances of how God's elective purposes, how they work or some settings to it. He lists here, or, or conditions even, Condition number one of God's elective purpose, they weren't even born. So God's distinction of Jacob and Esau is made while the two boys are in the womb. They're not even out. It's it's not due to birthright. In fact, it's it's the older. It is the firstborn who's going to end up serving the younger. And so even before their own birth, God's purpose of election, choosing one and not the other, it's at work. In the womb. Condition number two is not having done anything good or bad. So the first condition kind of points maybe to a certain status or, or right uh, of birthright. The second maybe points maybe something like morality or righteousness. Did something good in Jacob or maybe evil in Esau in the womb? Did that, did that determine God's choosing here and God's plan? And the answer is no. The point here is that God alone chooses. We don't understand that fully. We know at rock bottom, it's all for, through, to Him be the glory. And yet there's God's electing purposes here, and we see that. The purpose of God, the purpose of election might continue. It's the second half of verse 11. It brings out this phrase, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. God is purposeful. Isaiah 46, verse 10, we've used probably many times, and maybe you know this already. God says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. It can be a troubling line, but that's what God's word says. Proverbs 19, verse 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. It almost even rhymes in the English. There's a continuing purpose. You've got NASB or you're using an NIV. You've got God's purpose of election. The ESV says might continue. NASB, I think, or NAV would or might stand. Maybe it's a reference even to Proverbs 19 here. God's purposes are sure, and they are sure in terms of God's election. Maybe I've already been using that word, but election here, meaning a special choice or a selection. This one, not this one. A brief survey, brief, of Bible texts reveals God's choosing and election. They are widespread. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7 You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Or Peter says, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. And even Revelation 17, verse 14, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. The elect of God are by God's own choosing and by God's own selection. This has nothing to do with God seeing something special down the road, or making some choice outside of his sovereign will and his purpose. And Paul's last phrase in verse 11, it makes sure we understand just how this elective purpose of God comes about to all of his children of promise. And he says there, it's not because of works. Not out of works. I think it's related to the boys in the womb having done nothing good or bad. Works here, anything a person themselves does, they're not the basis here of God's purpose of election. That's what the text is saying. The basis is rather on the second part, on him who calls, because of him who calls. Children of God are those called by God. And it's saying that that's not all there is. There's repentance, there's faith, there's sanctification, There's things we, in fact, we really do, but the emphasis here is to nail down what's the cause behind it all. And that is God's will, God's purpose of election. And we're going to come back to this will as we look at this as the weeks go by in the following text here. But I want to come, I said, I want to come back just to verse 13. And again, one result of God's purpose of election is this Jacob... I loved, Esau I hated. That might be a hard phrase to read. Maybe one response might go like this. We might say, wait a second. How can this be? How can this be fair? Shouldn't God, I mean, there's so much talk of God's love. Shouldn't he love both of them? God's God's playing favorites here. Or God is just arbitrarily, he's picking one. He's not picking the other. Now, Verse 14, Paul's going to come, he's going to answer this. Just, just like we saw last week, kind of the answer comes in the next section. So we'll look at that again. But let's just deal briefly with this, these with Esau first. I'm going to share, thinking of hate, and God hating, I want to share two verses to remind us of God's hatred actually towards sin and evil. One is from Psalm 5, verses 4 through 5, that says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Verse 5 of Psalm 5 says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 11, verse 5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. In truth, all who are in sin are in a 
this sense, hated by God, and we are thus rightly called enemies of God. And were it not for sovereign grace, the sovereign grace of God, God is He's completely just in His hatred. He's completely righteous in His anger toward every sin committed by us, the rebel creatures. Everyone. He's, he's righteous in, in His hate, hated anger. The common response here is instead of questioning God's unfairness in His love, which we might say, well, man, it seems Jacob got love, Esau not, what? Instead of questioning his unfairness in love, the question here is why would he love at all those who have rebelled against him, those who have sinned against a holy God who, who hates all evil and sin and all evil doers? And yet, God is merciful. Jacob, I have loved. God is merciful. He's loving towards his enemies who are the elect, his elect. Romans 8, we just looked at this, verse 37. In all these things we are more than conquerors. How? Through Him who loved us. That's verse 37. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And it ties it with God's purpose according to the purpose of His His will. Or, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. It, it's not really that Jacob was somehow more lovable, either in the womb or actually outside the womb for that matter. Remember, Jacob, he deceived his own father. Jacob had more than one wife. Jacob was silent when he should have acted. I uh, even read elsewhere, he's got, there's foreign gods, maybe not that he's worshipped, but they're in his household, these foreign gods. And yet God's electing purpose is what? It's not based upon man's works. It's solely based upon God's sov- sovereign, his loving, and we should add his irresistible call. A call so loving that Romans 8 says nothing's going to separate you from God's love. All right, a couple words, a couple thoughts, three in conclusion here as we look back on this section. Number one, God's word never fails. That's the beginning line. God's word is a promise. So what he says, what he promises, it will not fail. We, in our, in our little minds, we might fail to apprehend all of his meaning and the scope of what he's saying But drill this down. God's word does not fail, does not fail, does not fail. It gives stability. It gives weight to what we read in all the scriptures, whether it be judgment or whether it be grace. In fact, even later on in Romans 10, Paul's going to write, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. God's Word is sure that says that all who believe in Him will not be put to shame. Uh, Our song this morning, Grace, Grace, God's Grace, it says, you who are longing to see His face, are you longing to see the face of God? And the question there is, will you this moment 
His grace receive. You don't have to wonder, am I, am I the elect? Do you want the Lord? Do you want Lord Jesus? Call on Him. Believe on Him. That's what God's Word says. And run after Him. And yet that election, that sovereignty of God gives us assurance. Number two, not all who are Israel belong to Israel. Yes, one may bear the ethnic name aligned with Israel or Jacob, but it's not ethnicity. It's not the flesh by which we, one belongs. Descent alone will not do it. There's a similar way we think of, think of all, all who are in the church of God, all who are Christians. It's not those that come from Christian families. It's helpful. It's great. It's a great environment to grow up in. God uses Christian families to produce Christian offspring. But that's not where it comes. It's not one's father. Maybe your grandfather was a preacher. That will not save. Or your parents were devoted to church. That will not save. Belonging to the family of God, it's not due to any work on our part, any lineage. It's only on account of the one who elects and who calls. So number three, God's love is according to his elective, purposeful call and not our works. Paul has just taken us to about, I think there's four Old Testament references to lay this out. What does that mean? Why is he going back? One thing it shows, going back to the Old Testament, God's sovereign election of those whom he calls. This is not an invention This is not an invention of the apostles. It's not just a New Testament thing. It's not an invention of Augustine or John Calvin or any any modern Reformed preacher. God's sovereign election election of individuals, it goes back even to the Old Testament. So Calvinism did not invent election. It's It's been God's directive really all along, even from eternity past. That's how far back it goes. God chooses. God loves this one. God hates this one. And there's, there's more you could unpack, more understanding there. It's a mystery in large part. And yet know this, remember this, in whatever God does, in all things, He is perfectly, He's always just. Whatever He decides, whatever He chooses is just and right and perfect all the time, every day, from way infinitely back in eternity to forward into eternity. He's just in this. Paul's going to get into that next as well. Well, God's sure call and election, they give us assurance for our own salvation. Your relationship to God, though it is, it's marked by faith, there's walking in good works, it is founded, though, not upon your works, but upon Him who calls I'll just ask you today, do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Then praise God for His gracious work in your life. And so in all of this is then God's glory in salvation, beginning to the end. His sovereignty is over all things, including His promise to count as His own all who come to Him by faith. All who come, who must come, to the one who calls according to his eternal and good purposes, to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Lord, left on our own, 
once again, you are righteous and holy and just to separate us for eternity from that love and in the wrath, the present eternal conscious wrath of God. You're, You're right to do that for our sins. And Lord, my prayer would be for any of us that and even we might say that if, if we don't realize the weight of our sin, would you, would you bring that to bear? Would you reveal that to us? We're not just talking about small sins and things that just don't really matter with God. Any sin is sin for it goes against your word and your decree, which you've called your creatures too. And yet Paul tells us in your book of Romans, we've all sinned. We're all there. And were it not for your sovereign electing grace, we would stay there forever, rightly. So, Lord, we praise you for this. We pray, Lord, that assurance, that doubts would pass away, assurance would come as we simply look to you and we rest that the one who began a good work will finish that good work because it's resting on you and not us. And may we praise your name into eternity for your good and sovereign grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.